Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. You know, uh, sometimes uh, I read articles uh, that you know, criticise uh, Christians for being anti-science. But, you know, I think, uh, as I, I think about it, that some of the claims that uh, our young people are being taught, and indeed older people, with regard to evolution, are, are anti-science. We have just so much evidence now that random mutations cannot produce the complex machines and designs of integrated parts or functioning that occur in living systems. And yet the the theory of evolution continues to be taught. You know, mutations can't just random mutations and and mutations are changes in chemical bonding um, in the DNA that changes the language. And this random blind altering letters in the DNA is not going to produce new functioning parts. It doesn't work that way. When we build machines, and as I mentioned previously, you know, I work for a company where one of our divisions builds quite complex machines that are used in, in manufacturing and, and uh, complex robotic-type machines. These machines require you know, a number of engineers um, using known laws of uh, physics um, to design the components they, and the components then have to be made by a skilled uh, craftsman and technician and there's a, a, a tolerance, a, a very small tolerance of uh, error in a lot of the parts. If the parts uh, aren't machined to very, very fine uh, tolerances, um, uh, extremely uh, then parts don't fit or they don't work or they don't move properly. Um, there's an enormous amount of design that uh, goes in and also the choice of the particular materials and, and components that are used um, in some places so that there there isn't wear uh, or resistant to wear or resistance to uh, corrosion or resistance to um, you know, continuous uh, uh, pressure or, um, or or hammering so that there isn't uh, um, uh, fatigue as different parts knock uh, against one another as part of the process. And um, also these machines require such things as lubrication and so forth. Uh, so there have to be systems in there that provide the, uh, the lubrication to the uh, moving parts. And of course, you know, these days, most of the machines are controlled by uh, computer systems as well. And so there's all the wiring that is in, involved to the right place and, and connecting it up to the correct computer. And, of course, that's exactly what happens in, you know, living living systems. And, and particularly, you know, if we get to a, a system like a human, um, then it's... Um, yeah, you know, we have you know so many complex systems that again all connected to our brain, and our brain has to operate these systems. But also, of course, we have consciousness, so we can make decisions and and choose. 
And of course, again, this is one of the whole areas of evolution that there really isn't an evolutionary answer to uh, because our consciousness, our thoughts are non-material. They're not matter. They don't weigh. They affect matter. Our thoughts affect matter, but our thoughts themselves are non-material. But evolution only deals with material things. Evolution involves chemistry. It involves chemical reactions to produce mutations, to produce new chemical structures that have new functions. You know, we really need to, um, you know, and listeners to this program really need to write to educators, talk to educators, bring, uh, make educators aware of the um, enormous problems that there are with the theory of evolution. It just really can't explain how we came to be here. And, of course, there's so many good resources out here. There's this, the Faith and Science program that you're listening to now. And, of course, if you uh, want to re-listen to this uh, program or to other programs on this series, remember to Google uh, or go into your search engine, whatever it is, um, 3ABN Australia or one word dot org dot au and click on the uh, listen button and or the radio and then the, the listen button and you'll uh, there's a range of programs there there's faith and science there's also another program that I've done uh, science conversations um, that is there and of course on the television there's the television series when you go to 3ABN uh, Australia there's the television series uh, Evolution Impossible um, where we discuss in detail some of these uh, aspects. And, of course, too, if you go to uh, 3ABN Plus, spelled P-L-U-S dot TV, and uh, open that up and, and scroll down. You'll see the different programs. If you scroll down, you'll come to Australia because there's programs broadcast around the world in different countries. And when you come to Australia, if you then scroll sideways, you'll come to the Evolution Impossible series and you can watch the whole series there on the internet. So it's important to tell people on your social media pages and friends about this amazing evidence. There are also many other good websites. The website creation.com has thousands of articles with references to the peer review literature that point to the powerful evidence that we now have for creation, for a creator who designed and made the living things um, that we observe um, on our planet and indeed in in space. Uh, this is um, a fantastic resource and also at least you know many books uh, that are available. Uh, if you go into the search engine on that site and enter in in six days, um, uh, with a, a six S spelt S I X, um, then my book um, in six days: Why fifty scientists choose to believe in creation will come up, um, and it's free on that site. As you open the the link down the left hand side, will be the names of fifty scientists, all with doctorates, who explain why they believe in creation and reject evolution. There's a, a huge amount of material out there now.
And, of course, there are many other sites. The Institute of Creation Research has, um, or ICR, if you, uh, again, go on your search engine, Institute for Creation Research, there are so many um, good articles on that website as well. There's also Answers in Genesis. Um, There's so much good uh, material out there now on the overwhelming scientific evidence that supports the biblical account of how we get how we got here. But one of the things that I'm very interested in is eyes, and the reason for that is that uh, I have closed angle glaucoma uh, that uh, affects the uh, pressure in my eye. It's essentially not curable. Um, I have to uh, take medication so that I can still see. and um, But uh, so uh, it's fantastic, of course, that we have science and we can build and have an understanding and a knowledge of our eyes so that we can design um, what we call drugs, which are chemicals that can, again, as I put those drops on my eye, they can um, help uh, changes uh, in the uh, reactions in my eye, in the physical structure in my eye, so that the pressure can be re- reduced. But you know, the eye has so many components that um, require design, and one of those is the tear film. And so um, the um, the um, refractive surface of the human eye is um, uh, most of the the surface, there's this um, tear film, which is only about four microns thick and has a refractive index of 1.34. Now, this film is a lipid layer that provides a smooth optical surface for the cornea that is vital for eye comfort and visual performance. After every blink, the tear film spreads over the cornea um, within a second and remains there for about four seconds. And so after five seconds, the ocular surface will start to experience a breakup of the tear film due to um, evaporation of the aqueous uh, water component of tears. And so if the eye doesn't blink within about five seconds, the tear film breakup will start to seriously degrade. And in actual fact, the image quality due to the change in the refractive index, um, if uh, face will actually change. And so when we think about it, tears play that important part. So you just can't have the, the eye. You've got to have all the tear glands and so forth that produce the composition of the, the tears. And one of the fascinating things about tears too is that they are powerfully... Um, antibacterial, they powerfully protect against infections in the eye. So, and again, we have the unique uh, chemical composition of the tear, which helps, uh, you know, carry out this uh, function and uh, of this uh, particular refractive index and, and, and provides this pleasantness. And then, of course, we, you know, we have to have the muscles that operate the, the eyelid and, and, and so forth. This all has to be coordinated. Now, the cornea itself uh, contributes about two-thirds of the total optical power of the human eye. And so it consists of about 80% of fibres which are filled with um, 
collagen, uh, little little fibrils of collagen that are only about 30 nanometers in diameter. And they're spaced about every 65 nanometers apart. Now, it's the precise spacing of these little collagen fibrils that produces a, a regularly arranged matrix that allows light to pass through without experiencing diffraction effects. Now, diffraction is where light is bent as it passes through a fluid. And so this is a really neat trick that makes the cornea transparent without a refractive index, um, without diffraction occurring. And um, a slight change in the spacing of the fibrils would cause the cornea to become opaque due to the destructive interference in the light. Now, this precise spacing of these little fibres is, again, it's powerful evidence for design. Now, random mutations aren't going to produce this spacing because in the meantime, the eye isn't going to work. And so when we look at this, it's um, all this fine detail as we discover, and we're just talking about the eye, um, again, just points to overwhelming engineering with pre-knowledge of the laws of physics and light. See, random mutations don't have laws of, you know, knowledge of the laws of light, of electromagnetic radiation. You have to have someone who has pre-knowledge of the laws of physics um, to be able to then design a system that's going to work this way, um, the... um, the light bending, and sorry, um, the diffraction, sorry, is, doesn't occur when um, light passes through a liquid. Diffraction is what occurs when light passes through a very, very small opening. I forgot that. So again, this is, again, the laws of physics, which um, are quite precise and, um, you know, one one has to know uh, what these laws of, of physics are. And so, again, my mistake just earlier there as I was uh, talking to you, as I just suddenly remembered, um, it's uh, refraction occurs when it's passing through a liquid. Diffraction is when it, uh, it's passing through a very, very narrow slit. And so, again, having random mutations have to know that this is part of the design thing, and they can't. One has to have a knowledge of physics, just like I had to have a knowledge of physics to know the difference between refraction and diffraction. And again, this, this spacing is, um, is quite critical for, uh, because it's affected by the wavelength of light and that. So again, this, um, again, this spacing and this exact spacing of 65 nanometers allows the light to pass through without diffraction effects. So um, to me, you know, just this fine detail points to a supernatural creator, designer, and it's everywhere when we go through, um, you know, the, the lens itself. So the crystalline lens contributes about a third of the total optical power of the eye, um, and of course, it helps in the image formation on the retina, and um, and provides for focusing at different target distances, so it accommodates that. Um, of course, the human eye has a a biconvex form, um, with the uh, surface behind 
um, uh, being, uh, sorry, the surface in front being about one and a half times larger than the surface behind. And a relaxed eye is only about uh, three and a half or 3.6 millimetre actually um, thick and has a diameter about nine millimetres. And uh, of course the lens uh, has no pig- pigment so it doesn't absorb uh, m- uh, very much light. So most of that light gets through to the uh, retina. It's interesting, again, the refractive index, and this is uh, refraction is how light is spent when it's passed through a liquid or a uh, transparent solid. Um, The refraction of the crystalline lens actually varies radially, and it's largest in the centre, has a refractive index of 1.402, and it's smallest at the edge with a refractive index of 1.375. And... um, it's very interesting that what they call um, gradient index lenses or GRIN lenses are extremely difficult to manufacture or to find commercially available. But they are very commonly seen in nature uh, despite the specificity and complexity of the design. Um, So if we only had a single refractive lens instead of a gradient index one, we would be missing about eight diopters of optical power. So our eyes would be far less efficient. So this is amazing that, again, our eye has been designed to optimise and maximise our optical power. It's interesting that... um, in Genesis, of course, Genesis one sixteen, we read the, uh, that God created uh, the sun and the moon and the greater light that would have been the sun to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the moon. And it's interesting how this fits in actually with the design of the uh, retina. Um, it has, uh, because it has cone photoreceptors for day and rod photoreceptors for night. And so the uh, phototopic day vision, spectral sensitivity or luminous efficiency is about 550 nanometers, uh, whereas the night vision, uh, spectral sensitivity is about 570 nanometers. And so our visual system shifts the peak sensitivity from day vision to night vision um, with an adjustment which is called the uh, Pukagini shift. And so, again, uh, we find this amazing design within the eyes. Now, the retina contains about 6 million cones and um, this cone system has an exceptionally high spatial and temporal resolution due to the packing density of the receptors and the way they are connected to the ganglion cells. Um, it's amazing how they, uh, the, the structure of the eye. Um, these photo, uh, phototopic cones have superior chromatographic and contrast sensitivity. So that's why, you know, humans um, are able to pick up a lot of very sensitive detail, can do very, very fine work. 
Um, on the other hand, there's um, about 120 million rod photoreceptors. So there were 6 million cones, but 120 million rods. And the rod receptors are highly sensitive in dim, dim light. And so um, this enables us to see in dim light. And um, this system has the... Um, the rod photoceptor system has the ability to sum up the signals from multiple rod photoreceptors and, um, and hence achieve spatial and temporal uh, summation. So again, we have to understand that all these signals coming from the cone and rod go to the brain and um, the brain has to interpret that information. I mean, of course, we're programmed to interpret the information that we get through our eyes. Of course, um, the retina also includes horizontal cells, bipolar cells, amacrine cells and ganglion cells. And without these cells, we would not be able to resolve the fine details, which would leave us with blurry images and inaccurate motion detection. So when you think about it, all these different types of cells, right? Uh, so we've got the horizontal cells, bipolar cells, amacrine cells, ganglion cells. We've got our uh, rods and our cones. All these structures have to be encoded for in the DNA. And what evolution has to claim is that all these structures arose by random mutations. And I think that, you know, the design is, is obvious. It's interesting that, um, you know, one of the proponents of evolution, uh, Dr. Richard Dawkins, has, uh, you know, proposed that the retinal architecture seems counterintuitively, it seems to be arranged backwards. But the photoreceptor is located at the back of the retina next to the retinal pigment epithelium, uh, and this architecture... Um, is important uh, for the retinal pigment epithelium to replenish the nutrients to the receptor cells, uh, which absorb the light was not absorbed by the photoreceptors, and it keeps uh, blood-borne pathogens from infecting the eye. So after all, it isn't backward, but very cleverly designed and also you know, provides cooling. Of course, one of the other areas of our structure that um, I'm acutely aware of are, are our bones. I um, enjoy running, and I have a number of friends that have had different uh, you know, joints replaced, knees and shoulders and this sort of thing. And so I'm very keen to you know, preserve good health of um, our bones and uh, one of the research projects that I've been involved in uh, recently is uh, looking at the uh, role of vitamin K2 which is an important uh, vitamin for bone health and other uh, parts and how we can um, actually in increase the intake of vitamin K2 in our diet because a lot of uh, people it would seem don't get sufficient K2, vitamin K2 it's a very interesting um, vitamin and uh, it's being discovered it has a lot of uh, health benefits. But our bones are not just rigid structures made up of collagen, as pointed out by um, Dr Liliana Endomunos. And um, I've uh, met Liliana um, 
At one stage, um, she was working in the in the same department uh, for me as second in charge. Uh, she has done a lot of research um, in the area of bone, and, and particularly looking at ways we can uh, protect against uh, bone cancer, uh, particularly in children. And uh, she points out that they are living and dynamic organs that grow change shape and regenerate themselves throughout our lives through a process called bone remodelling. And this process involves development, maintenance, repair and growth and depends on complex and tightly controlled activities of two major cells, osteoblasts, which make new bones, and osteoclasts, which reabsorb or break down bone. Now, both cell types work with opposing functions with timely precision and in perfect balance. And their activity is controlled by cartilage-making cells by osteocytes, which are cells embedded in bone mineralisation matrix, and by extensive regulatory network genes and signalling pathways. And these complex multi-step pathways are driven by a vast array of active proteins, each of which is explicitly coded by DNA for a specific purpose. Now, this is um, what um, Dr. Endomunos is explaining here is that we've got an extremely complex design system in bones that involves cells that produce bones and so cells that reabsorb or break down bones. And so even just our bones a powerful evidence of intelligent design, a powerful evidence of intelligent design. And the thing is that each step in the signalling pathway involves several of proteins, specific proteins, working in a synchronised and hierarchical manner. The entire process of bone remodelling is tightly regulated at the level of DNA through a variety of chemical changes in the DNA molecule. And in turn, the DNA is tightly regulated by numerous short-coding RNA molecules called microRNA. You know, when we look at the specific detail, we find overwhelming evidence of supernatural design. These processes, these signalling pathways, these control systems, they can't all arise by chance. And if they're not there, it doesn't work. Our bones don't work. And the thing is, these processes are in the bones of right, very of animals right early in the development of evolution. Because bones require, this is what bones require. We have so much evidence for a creator, so much evidence for a creator as designed in the Bible. And I would encourage everyone, if you haven't read the Bible, buy a Bible, get a Bible, borrow one from a library and read it and begin to um, read and know about the message and inspiration that God has given there uh, and revealed about himself uh, as a God who loves us, who came and died so that we might be able to live with him forever in eternity. It's an amazing message in the Bible. You've been listening to Faith and Science 
I'm Dr. John Ashton. Have a great day. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.